0: Set down your sleepy water and your Mr. Whistle. Take off that raincoat and grab a cold beer. It's time to have a real talk about pediatric dentistry.
1: You're listening to Bruise and Tiny Teeth, the unfiltered pediatric dentistry podcast.
0: Boom, we're live. All right. I'm going to kick us off here, Dr. Marn. I, uh, you know, normally I do a pretty casual open here, but, uh, for the sake of time, because I'm super pumped to have a, an anesthesiologist on, I just want to dive right into it. So I'm going to go ahead and rattle off a little intro here so the guests can get to know you a bit better. And then we're just going to like take the plunge into the content here. So, uh, our speaker today is Dr. Richard Marn. Um, he's a physician with, uh, dual board certified, uh, who's dual board certified in anesthesiology and pediatric anesthesiology. Trained at NYU, Johns Hopkins was on Mount Sinai Hospital faculty uh, as one of their pediatric anesthesiologists for over a decade. Um, See, he's the only board certified pediatric anesthesiologist in all of New York State specializing in pediatric in-office sedations for pediatric dentists and oral surgeons through his company, New York Medical Anesthesia. What I think is super cool is your wife, Dr. Jessica Marn, is a fellow pediatric dentist in the trenches with us fixing cavities over here. So kind of the ultimate power couple here. Uh, and I know you guys do some <laughs> together. So um, that's uh, even gives you guys a little bit more street cred uh, as a power couple. So very cool. So um, you guys uh, are recognized um, in much of the medical education for dentists and oral surgeons um, that You guys had recognized that our training in anesthesia and uh, medical emergencies was kind of fragmented and incomplete. So you guys co-founded the education company Blue Pacific Medical Simulation that we're going to talk more about. And that teaches dental offices how to properly respond to medical emergencies in their office. Um, so that's what we're going to be talking today. He's going to be speaking on, uh, you're going to be talking about how to come up with strategy steps to creating, um, our own high performance teams in our office to respond to these medical emergencies with confidence and competence. Um, so ultimately we don't get all sued for malpractice suits. And so with that being said, (laughs) again, I, uh, I've been trying to get an anesthesiologist on the podcast for a while, but you know, dentists tend to be very much people, persons like hop on. Doctors can be a little bit of a, a tougher nut to crack. I've, I've asked a few of my anesthesiologists in the office and I kind of get a cold shoulder. So for what it's worth, Dr. Martin, I appreciate you hopping on the podcast, take, taking the time to do this with me. It means a lot.
1: Oh, my pleasure. Thanks for having me on. Uh, by the way, you know, if, if,
0: well, if you don't mind, let me go by first names, Casey. Let's do it. I'm pretty casual. Richard, Casey, we can do that. That sounds great.
1: Yeah, we can do that. Fellow colleagues, no big deal.
0: I like it. So, um, <laughs> Ooh, what do you got sipping on over there? Because I just cracked a Pilsner.
1: I don't know. It looks like some kind of limbic beer. My wife poured it for me. Good for um, her. It's, I like, I'm a, I like s- more sweeter drinks. So she's like, you'll drink this. I'm like, okay.
0: <laughs> yeah, for sure. I've been on a big sour kick lately, which is, uh kind of like a, TV what do you got here? Um, uh, there's a local brewery by us called friendship brewing. It's the place I always take, uh, I try to network a lot. So new oral surgeon comes to town. I take the guy and we go to friendship brewing and we get a big flight of different sours. And I always, I pick up a mixer, six or five, but that's like my local meat. Uh, actually this is okay. Sidebar here. Um, I S we're starting me and a handful of specialists in the area are starting this new little guy study club. We're calling it whiskey Wednesday. We're all really excited about it. So basically, like once every month or two, it's just like a couple of pediatric dentists, oral surgeon, some general dentist, a bunch of dudes, and we get together and everybody brings like a, a nice bourbon, and we just kind of sit around and complain about you know like tough kids and like talk, you know, kind of like share cases and stuff. <laughs> it's it's really predominantly just a social session, and we drink whiskey and and kind of write off whatever we buy. So it's kind of fun.
1: You know, that's that's what it's all about, man. Just in. Talking about work, enjoying it with other people who kind of are in the same boat with you and, you know, understand what you're going through and and it feels better that you're not just alone out mm-hmm. there floating out by yourself in the big ocean.
0: That's right. Uh, you know, I, I just thought of a side side thing I'd like to ask a little bit more about before we get into the nitty-gritty of anesthesia. Tell me about your wife and her training. I know she's off running the household doing things. Um, she's a pediatric yeah. dentist by trade. I know you guys are from Hawaii originally, and now you guys Are based in New York. Um, What's her story? Where's she from, and what's what's her practice life all about? Yeah.
1: Well, I'm actually from Hawaii. Came to New York, met my wife, and never left since then. My wife is actually originally from Myanmar, or you know, used to be known as Burma. Mm -hmm. And she came here when she was a young child, and and has been in New York ever since. Uh, She went to NYU for dental school, and. Uh, she went to Saint Barnabas in the Bronx uh, of New York, where she did her her training, and and then opened up an office in uh, in downtown and also one in Midtown of Manhattan. Uh, and so she's she's a practice owner. She's a a, a pediatric dentist. She uh, manages um, uh, some associates and a, and a staff as well. And as far as I know, she really still continues to love her work and. Enjoy uh, her patients. and so it's it's because of her that I know about pediatric dentistry. I honestly I did not know that pediatric dentistry existed until I until I <laughs> met her when I was a resident at NYU, and I, I, it's true I, I you know I was just naive to what what dentistry is about, which is quite frankly what a lot of physicians are—they're just naive to to uh, what goes on in the dental world, and so mm-hmm. my wife really was the one that got me interested and involved in the pediatric dental world and oral surgery world and just dentistry in general. And that's where I learned a lot of this from initially, uh, as I kind of entered into this, in this community.
0: Well, so let me kick off by asking about that since you kind of have a front row seat and she obviously has been practicing as a pediatric dentist for a while. You guys, you know, she's owned a practice. So you've kind of seen anesthesia Mm -hmm. and her practice change and evolve over time that was one of the first things I wanted to ask what was, uh, I guess, what kind of anesthesia trends that you've seen being a provider for yourself with an anesthesia background and for your wife, you know, do you see, I guess, how do you guys do sedations for your wife and in her office? What are, you know, geographically, every part of the country seems to do sedations a little different. Like I know, coastal in the South really do a lot of open airway, IV cases, oral conscious sedations, really big places. Like what are, what are some of the trends you guys have seen and how is anesthesia kind of done in your area and with your wife's practice? I'm just trying to get a pulse on what the anesthesia seems like over in New York and that sort of thing. So in
1: terms of trends, I, I find that it's right. It's when you, when you do, if we just focus on kids for now,
0: mm-hmm.
1: most of the Anesthesia options are either intubate the kid or, or um, you know, uh, open airway sedation. Um, this is if you bring an anesthesiologist into your um, into your into your office. I mean, obviously, there's oral sedation and people who want to uh, try IV sedation without an anesthesiologist. That's also on the table. But when you bring an anesthesiologist in, it's it's basically those two options, and it's a bit regional, but uh, for example, in New York, uh, uh, let me rephrase it. I, I used to do cases in Ohio. And they uh, all the offices I work with, they would all do open airway. And part of that is because of the, the interest of the pediatric dentist. But it's also dependent on who you have as an anesthesiology provider sometimes these anesthesiology providers will convince these pediatric dentists, hey, we can do open airway and I'll show you how to do it. And a lot of these pediatric dentists may be hesitant. And then if you got the right person, they'll show you how they can effectively do open airway. But to do open airway successfully, you have to cut dry. And I'm not sure what you do uh, in other f- facilities or locations, but if you're going to successfully do open airway, you have to cut dry, which means, as you know, you're not using any water or, if, or maybe a little bit of water. And so therefore, some of these pediatric dentists get comfortable with cutting dry. Some of them have trained that way. Uh, and so that kind of model fits those those pediatric dentists. Now, shifting to New York, for example, where I do most of my work now, uh, these the pediatric dentist here the culture is they love their water <laughs> i i do occasional open airway cases uh but it has to be very particular that fits the needs of that pediatric dentist and i'm not the type to convince them to do open airway uh i just i listen i want to make sure you're comfortable with the best option and so they love their water they don't want to change and so i in those cases i will intubate and 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 do that case uh with um, you know with a breathing tube
0: Mm-hmm. Let me ask this then. So in an night, let's, let's create like a pretend ideal patient that would be very bread and butter for you. Um, cause I, I'm always interested like what modalities different anesthesiologists like using with a side note that like, it's very clear from listening to this podcast and everybody else in the peds world that bringing in a, an anesthesiologist and doing more in office cases is definitely a, a very growing popular. That's how I do it. I just, you know, it's, it's very clear that you know, the supporting your business too, that like this is a trend that's going to continue to grow and have a lot of demand. So that's why this is worth talking about. And I like hearing the different ways this can be done. So let's say in your practice or your wife's practice, um, we've got like a, a healthy, normal weight, five-year-old boy comes in and needs an eight-pack of stainless steel crowns. Um, and you're going to do like an intubated case, you know, is uh, what what's kind of like, uh, and this obviously goes with the caveat, every case is going to be a little different. But like if everything goes as planned, walk me through like a traditional case for you guys. Are you guys like, um, uh, half meg per kg of Versed, uh, oral Versed as a light sedative. Then we mask them down with Sivo, IV, propofol, nasal tube, you know, some Dex and Zofran, and then we pull the tube deep. Or do you guys like to do ketamine? I am ketamine. You know, there's some different ways to skin the cat there. What's, what's, what works well in your hands for like, say, a very bread and butter Pete's case? Um, you know, but it depends. So if, uh, a
1: five-year-old child will not be able to sit for an IV. So often what, uh, uh, what has been done is you, there's, there's just maybe a handful of options. Um, the, the main options are people are you give a ketamine dart into the arm and has a subversa and an atropine in it. And it stuns the kid enough that you can place an IV in to the child. The, the other option is you could use a little bit of uh PO verset or some other sedative orally and then add nitrous uh to that case and then add then place an IV with a lot of distraction techniques. Or don't even use any oral sedation and just use nitrous and then put an IV in. I've done that before. So there's a lot of different ways to skin the cat. I think it it really depends on the not only the status of the child, but how good that anesthesiologist or pediatric anesthesiologist is and how comfortable they are in that setting, in being in an office. Um, There's a, there's another group that I know of that um, they use a lot of distraction, both visual and um, uh, auditory uh, distraction um, and, and nitrous to, place and then, and then place the IV in the dental chair. Uh, It's a bit of a production, but it works for them uh, as far as I know. And, and, and then, you know, of course, uh, typically what I do then is I usually place, uh, I deepen it with a lot of propofol and then I place the IV, I'm sorry, place IV, deepen with a lot of propofol, place the, um, place the breathing tube um, Mm -hmm. nasally. And then, um, and then of course, you know, uh, position secure
0: the breathing tube with some tape and then, um, you start the case. Sure. Uh, and then are you an extubate deep type of guy when it comes to, you know, doing a lot of cases and good turnover, uh, different anesthesiologists like to pull tube at different times. As you know, it seems like some will sit there and wait for 15 minutes till the kids really trying to pull the tube out themselves and squint their, you know, brow their forehead. And then some like to pull the tube deep, let them wake up on their own. Um, what do you have a preferred method that seems to work better in your hands for extubation
1: uh, I like them with a little bit more reflexes um, I think pulling out deep uh, you know it's great if you want faster turnover between cases uh, because that's the that's the purpose of it uh, the, uh, the idea that oh I want to wake them up deep so they're not coughing and bucking on the tube as they wake up to decrease their chance of sore throat okay, I get it but if you're really worried about airway issues you want them their reflexes to be more intact and You know, the the unique thing about being in an office is you have to, you can't treat it like the hospital. You cannot treat it like a medical facility because it's not, in my opinion. You have to be, as an anesthesia provider, sometimes being the only medical person there, you have to not only up-level your criteria for safety, but also you got to up-level your team. You know, you got to make sure everybody's onboarded. Uh, onboarded appropriately. It's not just uh, you just come in and out. So uh, in terms of excavating deep, I, I just, I don't think that's a good idea. You're dealing with secretions in there. There's blood. God forbid you're doing extraction and there's residual dripping that blood in there and saliva and residue. And no matter how dry or clean it is, you know, extubating deep sometimes in a, you know, in a dental setting, I don't think, uh,
0: is necess- usually the best option. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess I, I'm kind of just trying to tee it, tee us up to, to get us into the meat of the topic, which we can just dive into then is, you know, I, I was just curious the way that you go through cases. If, if you do that as such to obviously have ideal outcomes and avoid complications and things, um, to avoid getting into problems in the office, which, you know, is kind of a big part of what you do and what I'm kind of interested in. And it's something we don't necessarily think about is like what things can go wrong in the office doing anesthesia. I know that it, at least from my perspective, as a, as the dentist, it gets easy to get in the routine of, okay, I've got GA cases tomorrow in office. My anesthesia team's great. They come in, they start lining kids up for the day. It's just factory work. I walk in there and the kid's Got an IV in and they're tubed and ready to go, and I sit down and do dentistry, and then I'm turning and burning and post op, and it seems, you know, very cookie cutter. But I, it's easy to just get complacent and forget that we're doing general anesthesia from a dental dentist standpoint. Because I think, well, if there's a problem, if there's a laryngospasm, that's you know, or if whatever the case might be, that's what the anesthesiologist there is is for is to bail me out. And so it's easy to, I guess, not pay attention. Like, what should my job be doing? Is and and if you Aren't paying attention to it, you get burned if something goes wrong. Ultimately, if there's a lawsuit or something, your name and your practice is the name on the, you know, uh, on the yeah. lawsuit as the yeah. defendant. So, um, I guess I'm asking, uh, just rambling on here to kind of start teeing us up to ask a little bit about <laughs> what types of things get dentists into trouble. What do you see? um, dentists and their office and team lacking in from like a training perspective? Are there, are there common areas that you see shortfalls in and what are, what are, I mean, I I don't want you to give away your whole secret sauce because this is what you do professionally is you (laughs) you help prepare dentists for these worst case scenarios, but I'm hoping you can kind of give us some insight. Like these are the things that I often see big shortcomings in a lot of dental offices that do in office GA.
1: Wow, you just opened opened a whole bag of worms here, man! Holy cow, Pandora's box. There's I a <laughs> <laughs> um. Listen, uh, yeah, I mean, and you, I used to think like that too, Casey, where you mentioned, you know, hey, the anesthesiologist will take care of everything. And when I st- spent more time in the in the dental industry, especially with the pediatric dentist, and, and I think that's just not the right way to think about. The whole thing, whether it's the anesthesiologist or the pediatric dentist or the dental team, because when you start thinking like that, that everybody starts thinking like everybody works in a silo, and that's a very pre two thousand type of thinking that, well, the surgeon will take care of that, and the nurse in an operating room, the surgeon will th- take care of this part, and the nurse will take care of this part, the anesthesiologist will take care of part their part, and there's not this team cohesiveness that is necessary, not only just for medical emergencies, but just for the day. And when you have a much more effective team working together, not only do you you, um, have a much more pleasant, efficient, and um, powerful experience with everybody involved, but you get better outcomes. And the problem is the dental industry overall doesn't think like that. They think, okay, just in this small little situation where a anesthesiologist is coming to your pediatric dental office. The anesthesiologist will take care of everything. Well, quite frankly, most of the, the anesthesiologists coming to your office are not, are not, sat, are not, um, they, uh, in my whole opinion, most of them are not really comfortable in a dental setting. Because that's not where we're, most of us are trained. We're, we're trained uh, to have nurses around, have surgeons around, have people that are medical trained personnel, medical assistants and scrub techs. And then to come in a situation where you may be the only medical person in that facility, that's, that's new terrain. And that's when shiitake kind of hit the fan. And so for me, team, team training is very important, no matter how experienced or inexperienced the anesthesiologist is, because when you have team training, everybody when it's done properly, everybody gets on board. Everybody is aware that they will have a role not only on a day-to-day when things are running smoothly, but especially when when a low stakes I'm sorry, a low probability but high, low probability but high stake events uh event happens because you need that teamwork and learning how to do that teamwork is not something all anesthesiologists in fact, most anesthesiologists are are trained in, or even medical people in general. And so I think um team based learning, especially for those kind of critical events, is very important and is often overlooked. And it's you know, it's great when everything's going well and we've had no events in the last few years. Well, I will tell you, Casey, if there is one event that will, you know, um, Affect the morale of your staff will affect your reputation, will affect your family's bottom line, affect your your I'm sorry, your family's livelihood, or even your your practice's bottom line. Is a medical emergency gone wrong mm-hmm. or gone sideways? I mean, I don't know of any other event that can. even if you look at a natural disaster, it's not going to affect your reputation. Eh, something happens, but when something like that happens, in your office, it is. It affects it on so many levels, and people just kind of blow it off because they they think it won't happen to me. It's a, with some of those misconceptions. It won't happen to me. Um, I won't panic. Uh, it won't happen at my office. Uh, we'll know what to do. We know CPR, or a lot of these misconceptions people have that when it actually happens, it's not enough. They they just don't have they are they're not prepared for it. So you know it. And I, when I reflect on what happens in the medical world to what happens in the dental world, there's a big disconnect in terms of how to respond to those, those kind of events. As I said, it's great when things are on cloud nine and, you know, the money's flowing and, you know, people and, and there's no events and people are, are high-fiving each other. But when that one case happens, um, it makes you think, did I, what happened? And a lot of it is, is people didn't get the right,
0: right enough training, honestly. Uh, you know, just as uh, a perspective on, on my end that I'd like to maybe kind of discuss, I think what's hard about it from being the dentist in, in this relationship or as part of this team is that it's, it feels like there's not a lot that we can control even with good training and you can kind of reflect and educate me on this, but I think, okay, what happens? Let's, let's come up with some emergencies. A kid has a laryngospasm. Um, you know, the doctor, the anesthesiologist there can do head tilt, chin lift, runs through the algorithm, positive pressure. Uh, you know, they've got, you've got your, you know, can deepen with propofol. You've got your sucks kit, but those, all those things on the checklist are things that the anesthesiologist does. Um, if a kid is, um, having an allergic reaction, there's, emergency medications and epinephrine and you place an IV and you follow the algorithm and all things that the anesthesiologist does. So then I start thinking, well, you know, if we're undertrained, what are things that I physically can control to help um, create optimal outcomes? And then I start thinking like, my facility has everything that you guys need and that we need like lots extra you know plenty of room to do the case we've got centrally plumbed oxygen that's turned on and filled that's working we've got team members that know how to dial 911 and let providers into the building but it's just it's this is just me kind of asking a hard question, I guess, but like, it just feels like there's not a lot that I can do as a dentist sometimes other than trying to make your job as easy as possible to kind of set you up for success to manage the emergencies. So I guess, how do you, how do you respond to that? When I say that, like, as a dentist, I feel helpless in those situations sometimes.
1: No, I totally get it. Remember my wife's a pediatric dentist. I know a lot of pediatric dentists, even when I got into this field and As a pediatric dentist, there's a lot of responsibility you have, especially if you're a practice owner, and and there's that big burden on you. Like, what do I do? I think I do the C credits. I go to webinars. I I not only do I do BLS, but I hope I have my whole staff do BLS. Um, And you know, maybe I might even go to like the APD. simulation workshop that they have sometimes in Florida or some other location. That's very pleasant. Um, but notice it's all, it's all these activities are very much on the dentist so that when an event happens, it's like, Oh my God, uh, what am I, what I'm missing? So there's this huge burden on the pediatric dentist. And I, and I, I believe that the dentistry kind of put that burden on, on the dentist, a lot of, from a medical emergency standpoint, um, or even just an emergency standpoint overall, there's a lot of burden placed on the dentist, and the dentists, unfortunately, are not well supported. They do, they're they not getting the guidance or training that they need. And what is a key point here, and I mentioned it briefly, is having that team support. So there is actually a lot you can do, Casey, during a medical emergency. The problem is the anesthesiologist doesn't even know what to tell, how to teach you what that is. All right. The the nursing staff or anybody they bring in to support is not really teaching you how to do that most of the time because they don't think about that, nor do they know how to guide you. See, when when um, just to give you an analogy mm-hmm. in in the medical world as a as a as an overview, if there's a medical emergency on the floor in the operating room, everybody pretty much knows what their role is. And they know how to communicate, and they know what to do. And if someone is not able to do it, someone steps in and fills that role. So it's kind of like a beehive. Everybody kind of comes together and and works together as a unit uh, cohesively. In a dental setting, even if you have an anesthesiologist, it's almost like a a pyramid type situation. Or another analogy is kind of like the snake, uh, the head of a snake. Where the top of the, the pyramid or the, the head of the snake is, is the, maybe that's not the best analogy, sorry, head of the snake, mm-hmm. but, uh, is the pediatric dentist. And, um, and so everybody in emergency, everybody looks to that dentist to know what to do. When, um, but if that pediatric dentist is not able to function or know how to onboard their team or know how to run an emergency or lead that emergency very well, or have the training in advance, or have the team trained in advance, then everything slows down and shuts down because everybody is totally fun- dependent on that one person, and that is the opposite of what usually happens in a in a well run medical emergency in a in a especially in a, these A level hospitals. So I, I don't know if you does that make sense to you that, it, it that visualization.
0: It does. Let me ask it this way then: so when you come to train pediatric dentist. Um, you know, are you, are you having, them like you walk in and say, okay, let's run an emergency simulation here. Uh, this patient is having an obstruction and we can't get air. Like, you know, Dr. gets dentist, like, how do you, how do you proceed? Like, do you, are you training dentists how to sit down and do a, you know, effective, you know, bag valve masking patients, open up airways, kind of run that, or do you spend more time focusing on like, how the team as a whole sort of responds or, you know, I'm, I'm just trying to gauge how, how that training works. Yeah. Yeah.
1: A, a great question. So there's, there are different ways um, to approach the training. It's in other words, it has to be customized, you know, whether it's the APD or another educational service organization or, or my team, it has to be customized to your team because you have a certain physical and a makeup of certain um physical logistic you know setup based on how your office is set up, but also your team, what they're comfortable with, what they're not. Some of them are very experienced, some maybe not. Sometimes the the dentist maybe does, you know, um works in the OR once a once a week. So they're very comfortable versus and they place IVs. Some do not. And so it's it varies. Uh, the training is very t- should be tailored to the office. And that and of course that's we tailor to particular office and what their needs are. So to answer your question, it's a mix. What, you're, what you refer to is, you know, bag, vibe mouse, that's a skill. That's a very basic skill. Uh, in terms of team training, that's, that's, a, that's a higher level simulation education where you, you actually, when it's done right, you actually not only uh, train the dentist, but you train their whole team, that they can all play a role. So for example, earlier earlier on in this conversation, you mentioned, oh, you know, my team um, knows how to call 911. Well, my question is, how do you know that? Like, how do you know your team knows how to call 911? How do you know what they'll say and what to do? Have they actually been tested? Have they been have they actually gone through some, you know, tabletop exercise on, hey, let's sit down. Uh, what happens when you call 911? By the way, how do we know who's going to call nine one? Who's taking that responsibility? If that person's off of work, who's going to take that role instead? And what do you say to them? What do you not say to them? And and, and what information do you want to convey? You know, for, I'll give you an example. If um, when sometimes you call these nine one one numbers, people are in such a panic they can't even remember the physical address that they're at. They just um, <laughs> they uh, sometimes. Are, are are um they're shocked because when there's an emergency people get very tunnel vision and they can barely remember you know their co-workers names and um and so when they get to 911 sometimes they're because they haven't been ch- trained or don't have any visual aids to support them um they get a little stunned now the operator is trained to help people along because they're, they're kind of supposed to be trained to help facilitate the information, to get that information out from the person to get the right people to them. But um, that, you know, that's not maybe not always the case as that's a big assumption on our part. Uh, and, but also that delays things. If you don't have not to get that information to that night won't operator, that just delays that uh, the help that you need to get there in a timely fashion. So, you know, to answer your question, like, what do you get trained? It, it not only it should be tailored to your office, but it also depends on what your needs are and how much time you have, because we, I could spend a good full day, maybe even two to go over so many concepts and scenarios with your office so that everybody gets involved. So in good training, simulation training, it's not just a dentist getting involved. It's your hygienist, it's your dental assistant, it's your office manager, it's the front desk, and all of them pulling together, so that it re, it somewhat lessens that burden as a dentist that's on your shoulders. Like in other words, if done well, you everybody knows that they can participate, and it helps to uh, uh, helps the dentist because often the dentist is a leader in a simulation or in a um, emergency. Mm-hmm. Um, but knowing that your team can support you is key. And I've heard that from pediatric dentists. Like, I don't feel supported by my team. I don't think I can, they can support me during a medical emergency. And, and I hear that quite often uh, from pediatric dentists. And there's an assumption that they will know what to do. But you know, you look at these training that you get, it's all on the, it's all on the dentist. It's not like most these dentists are bringing their full, their whole staff to, to the AAPD, you know, simulation uh, training center. And not only that, if they did, it's actually not in the location where the actual emergency happens. And so you, ideally you want the training in the location where it happens, where people are familiar with what they have and, and, and kind of go from there.
0: Uh, hope that kind does. of, it does I gave you yeah, a lot I, of information there. You no, know, that's good. That, <laughs> that's um, I'm going to take this on a, on a little bit of a related tangent here. Um, I wanted to maybe t- yeah. touch on like the physical office space. Um, maybe it seems like that's a big important part of the puzzle because there's a lot of young, young pediatric dentists, new pediatric dentists building offices because they've had access to care problems and now they can bring in an anesthesiologist, um, and do in office general anesthesia. And so that falls in that category of things that we can control is how do I design my office, the physical size and shape and location and rooms and plumbing and everything else to allow us to you know, set us up for success and it's something that doesn't get talked on a lot, but something I spent a lot of time designing and thinking about, um, for our office. So I, I know that you work with other offices besides your wife and and you have an, another company where you do traveling anesthesia in the New York area. Um, I was just wondering if yeah. you could touch on what, um, when you go to other offices, what are some things you like to see as far as like the setup of the office, the size of rooms, the, um, hallways, the access that were the location of emergency items, things like that. What are things you like seeing when you walk in the office and you say, man, this office is kick-ass this place. They've got it dialed in. This is a good place to do anesthesia. And what things do you walk in and say, man, I, I hate it. Every time I got to go put kids to sleep here. I hate working in that office. What are some things that you like? Yeah. To see?
1: yeah. So what you're talking about is what is the physical setup and requirements for really effective you know and safe sedation in office yes all right so uh i do cases in in new york and in manhattan specifically and we have small offices so i've learned to operate in a tighter space than maybe other people are comfortable with um so that's that's very individualized um but i still when so let me take a step back whenever i go to a dental office i have a checklist I have my own personal checklist that I make sure I vet the office appropriately, and simple things like you know, uh, because if you don't have it, I have to bring it, or at least we have to purchase it in advance. So simple things like four by four gauze, or you know, you know, appropriate size gloves, or silly things like a sharps container that's mobile, you know, that I can have near me. Um, but you you can have another. I think another thing that's important and missing is. Having a portable e-tank, oxygen e-tank, and and I assume you do you know what that is, Casey? Yes. All right. So you know it's the kind of auction tanks you see people kind of wheeling around if they have COPD or bronchitis and and um, and they have it you know with a nasal cannula in their nose. But I I personally believe if you're gonna do sedation, whether it's oral or IV or IV general anesthesia, whatever it is, that you should have at least two portable e-tanks in your office ready to go. Now, the reason being is this, an and and an Ambu bag as well with appropriate size masks. I think that and epi, those are the most basic things you got to have in your office if from an emergency standpoint. And the reason I say this is because if you're going to do sedation, the most typical things with children, if they decompensate is airway, airway, airway. Okay, And so you have to be able to at least support their breathing with some oxygen and positive pressure ventilation. It is typically, uh, if you get oxygen from the wall, it's not going to be able to do that for you. Nine times out of 10, the way that most pediatric dental offices are set up are not designed to provide high flow, high pressure oxygen from the wall. And so you have to get it from a tank. And that's why you want a portable oxygen tank to support you to do that. And why do you need two tanks? Because every so often, quite frankly, one of those tanks will be empty, even though it says full. And so you want to make sure that <laughs> you have uh, two tanks just in case one is failing. But also, if, if the patient does decompensate from an airway standpoint and you crank up those flows to get that high pressure in that Ambu bag and you're venting that patient, that oxygen tank will be depleted very quickly. And you cannot assume that that paramedic will show up on time. All right? Uh, in an urban setting, the average time from when you call 911 to when the paramedics will arrive is nine minutes, on average, in an urban setting. In a ur- uh, in a suburban and rural setting, that's going to be much longer. I've read even 15 minutes. That's average. OK? So you, you in other words, your team has to be trained and prepared for those nine minutes, right? until more help arrives. Uh, and, and, and so oxygen, um, in terms of equipment supplies, there's a, there's a list of course that we can go through, but the highlights is an E-tanks with a regular on it an Ambu bag with different size masks and knowing how to utilize it. It's not good enough just to buy it and keep it in a corner. You actually have to train and practice with it. So for example, when I'm doing cases in a sit- stable situation, I will actually um, in one of clinical cases, if I think the patient um, um, needs some oxygen support through a mask, I will actually make sure I can do it. And then I'll, I'll have one of the um, dental assistants or even the dentist just, hey, I want you to learn how to hold the mask and actually ventilate this child just briefly, just so they get comfortable with it. And, of course, I do that also in the actual training that we do through the, our company, Blue Pacific Medical Simulation. Is we train with like as uh, very life-size mannequins how to effectively ventilate, and I'm not saying you're going to be you know as good as someone like me who's been doing this for you know almost two decades over two over two decades, but that you actually get comfortable with it because of all the skills, Casey, that can be life-saving. In my humble opinion, is two things: knowing how to ventilate somebody, like a bag valve mask, mm-hmm. and giving Epi. And quite frankly, if you don't know how to practice that in a, uh, if you don't practice that in a non-stressful situation, how are you going to do it well in a stressful one? Uh, so, you know, it's it's like asking uh, you know, Navy SEALs, hey, listen, we're going to have you go on this mission, but you're not going to practice at all until we really call for your help. And then by the way, we're going to send you to like, I don't know, some foreign country that's, you know, <laughs> very mm-hmm. scary, but you've never worked together in this kind of setting in a stressful situation and you haven't really tested your tools. So good luck. <laughs> That's mm-hmm. not going to happen, and so um, in terms of the equipment and supplies, I think those are the important things. Now, in terms of physical physical space and 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 um, you know, the setup. Obviously, you want to. You know, I'm not an engineer or an architect, but you, know, you want to you want to have a space where uh, you can. Have easy access to your emergency equipment supplies where people can come in and out, ingress and egress, in and out of the facility. And that, um, you know, um, the entrance and exit is easily identifiable for paramedics. Sim- simple things like that. And, uh, you know, I don't, you know, I think when I go to majority of Pietri dental offices, they, they, fit, they fit the bill. It's, it's not, um, most dental offices are, are not compromising in the physical space. You know, and I will tell you too, if I don't think an office is safe for me to do anesthesia, I won't do it. You know, I won't. It's just not worth it. If if I don't think the dentist or pediatric dentist is of the right mindset or a good match for me, I won't do it. It's just not worth the stress or heartache, not only on me, but the whole rest of the staff. And so mm-hmm. uh that's part of the checklist and why when I meet people for the first time a potential clients, it's about them being comfortable with me and my approach and style, but also that I'm comfortable with them as well. You know, it's, it is a teamwork effort and, and working in a dental office, it is very important.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, it's I hope something that I had, answers some of your questions. It does, that was a really good answer to that question. And it's something to think about where I suppose in Manhattan when every square foot costs you 50 or 60 or however, Lord knows how many dollars a year, um, that's precious real estate. Yeah. You know, you obviously can't have a bunch of gigantic, um, you know, operatories, but things within common sense, like wide enough hallways to get access to like if 911 needs to come and they've got to bring, you know, if they've got to come up getting kids in and out easily, um, some things like that. Uh, makes sense. But to your point, Richard here, I had, uh, I just picked out just one of these articles that I had sent you earlier, but I had read this before. Yeah, yeah. Started, um, and, and we're, I'm not going to go through this whole thing with you, but you brought up an interesting point about the oxygen that was an issue here. So one of the things that I was looking at prior to our conversation was what are some recent cases we know of where kids had a, a fatal outcome, uh, at a dental office. And there was a case from, um, this looks like it was maybe two or three, three years ago, Um, four years ago, a two year old boy died after getting a common dental procedure done at Cool Smiles, which Cool Smiles, a lot of us are going to know as the, um, the chain corporate chain, uh, pediatric office. I don't even know if they're still in existence, but they were fraudulently submitting a bunch of claims and they've had a whole slew of, of things. But this was a, um, this was a two year old boy in Arizona, um, went for routine dental care. I'm just skimming through the article. Um, the, Dennis said that everything went well, lasted for 35 minutes. Um, he became unresponsive, was rushed to the hospital, pronounced dead and a malpractice lawsuit was filed. So lawsuit alleges that, um, a cool smile staff member silenced the alarm on the pulse oximeter, which is used to monitor pulse and oxygen saturation. Also alleges that Zion was left alone in the recovery room and an oxygen tank Zion was hooked up to was either empty or not working properly. Um, and then it goes on and finishes out saying that the, uh, anesthesia based, um, anesthesiologist contracted by cool smiles, carried him back to the, carried him back and placed him at the foot of the dental chair while second child remained intubated. And that, um, um, they were trying to maximize productivity of each clinic by scheduling too many children back to back. And there was an insufficient amount of time between child for, um, monitoring the children who are recovering and allowing time for staff members to turn over. So um, I just summarized that because that's a recent case that happened that kind of brought to your point, some of the things we yeah. talked about, empty oxygen tanks that weren't properly tested and making sure those were working. It kind of touched on maybe not giving enough time or having staff members that monitor kids, um, in recovery. So it's kind of nice to think it like learn from other people's terrible outcomes, like what went wrong there so we can prevent that happening in our office. But that just touched on a few things that you've brought up, which was interesting.
1: I don't know if you can see Casey but I'm here shaking my head because you know
0: this is this is tragic. You know this um
1: uh, you know I th- it's it's not it's not always oh I, uh, the auction wasn't you know wasn't complete. Yes, you know that's you know that's definitely a problem. But it's when you look at it it's a breakdown in training. It's a breakdown in knowing what to do. And what to look for. I, I do not know the details of this case. In, in depth. Besides what you just reviewed. Um, but when I hear the basics. This is a breakdown. In, in training. And in and, 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 and people. Being savvy about what's go, what, what could go wrong. And you know. A lot of us think. Okay it's a healthy kid. The case is done. Oh, everything will be fine. No. You look at some of these cases, and this is not the only case. There, there are problems that happen after the case. And this is, this, is not the, this is not the only one where kids, are unfortunately, have these bad outcomes because, oh, the kid got through the aesthetic. Everything you know, got through the worst of it, and they're totally fine. And so people are not trained on how to utilize a monitor. And even forget the monitor. Even if there's no monitor or no oxygen, if you get the right training, you know how to look for problems in advance. Is a kid breathing well how's their pulse do i can I feel their breathing on my hand um is the, what's the color in their lip um you know do I know how to do a chin lift if they look like they're partially obstructed as they're waking up? These things that uh, uh, when properly trained and trained how to look for it can be life saving and we're not talking about aggressive things like I have to know how to intubate. We're talking about simple things like. Ted tilt, chin lift. And I will tell you, I do that as well with my patients. Sometimes they need a little bit of support where all I have to do is lift up the chin in a correct way to make sure that patient's breathing well until they get rid of the anesthetic and they can start supporting the airway a little bit more in the post-op period. And not to say that, um, oh I, well, it's only because you, you know that because you're a pediatric anesthesiologist. No, I train, I train the dental team how to do that. And, and even though I may have my own support team with me, my own medical support team for the post-op, I still train the dental team to know what to look for because the more people know about it, the better your, um, your outcomes will be. I'll give you an example, Casey. When I work with an office, I actually do an in-service with them on a regular basis. With my with my with the dental team, I get the dentist involved, the the dental assistants, and the front office staff. And at the start of the day, we review um, some case scenarios, um, emergencies uh, that may happen. Um, talking about maybe how to use certain equipment, you know, how to hold a mask. Different sometimes different skill sets, sometimes different uh, logistics. Like how what happens if there's an emergency? What's the communication we have to go through that? How do we position the patient? You know, would do you know where my, my emergency tools are? You know, we even discuss what happens if the anesthesiologist passes out, <laughs> you know, things like this, like, what do you know what to do in that event? And if you don't talk about it and you don't discuss it and you don't plan for it, when it happens, you're going to be, um, you know, in a bad a world of hurt because you didn't have the right trainer or, or, um, or, um. You didn't anticipate these issues because, you know, you all thought it's not going to happen to me. So, you know, this type of event, it, to me, it's, yes, the equipment sounds like there were some, based on that, that article, sounds like there were some, some key missing imp- components that, quite frankly, should have been checked at the start of the day right. and throughout the day. Mm-hmm. But even if you didn't have it, there, are, there could have been other things, in my opinion, that should have been done in advance to get your team uh, to look for problems, whether they have any monitors or not. I mean, I understand the standard of care is to have certain things, but even if they, even if the oxygen ran out, even if the battery died on the monitor, um, uh, or even if the electricity went out, do you know how to still keep that child safe until they recover? And again, I, I know I keep kind of harping on it, but I do feel that in the dental industry and the pediatric dentistry, there is a big gap from where, from training standpoint, where the pediatric dental industry is and oral surgery industry and the dentistry in general is to where the medical industry is and the community is with regard to responding to medical events. And, you know, obviously, as you can tell, I, I want to, I have a desire to want to get the dental community, the dental tribe closer to where the medical facility and training is and and kind of close that gap as much as possible as quickly as possible
0: uh excuse me so i I guess as we kind of use that as a um base to summarize some things here tell me more about like your uh company and and how you do training say somebody's listening to this they've got uh they do a lot of in-office general anesthesia but you know Wants to do everything they can to have the best training and prevent bad outcomes and not have an adverse event that winds them up in a lawsuit where they lose everything. What? How does your company help? They get a hold of you and say, Richard, what? What can you do to help me get my staff trained up? What does your company do to like? What, what's the series of events look like after they contact you?
1: Um, so, if someone was to reach out to us, um, well, first of all, what we do is we specifically train um, dentists and their teams. About how to properly respond to medical emergencies, whether they do sedation or not, but especially if they do sedation, and we especially um, uh, like to work with oral surgeons and pediatric dentists because we do feel that they that the need is really great in that area. But also, I think pediatric dentists, oral surgeons understand quite frankly what the risk is um, in their industry. So if someone's interested what we do is we we um we kind of go through an intake process kind of learn about what their needs are uh what what deficits they only they see as well and 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 after we after we answer all their questions and make sure we satisfy um and address what we can do for them and if they still want to go ahead we actually will travel to their office we actually travel to their we we coordinate a date and time and we depend on their size of their office the size of their team. Um, uh, we, we plan in advance. Okay. First of all, there's, um, we, we make sure that they have the appropriate equipment supplies and training in advance. In other words, you know, they should have at least BLS training. They should have the auction tanks we talked about. There's a list of things that we send them in advance to make sure, Hey, before you even come in, make sure you have these items. And then once, um, once we decide on that day, uh, that we come in, we, uh, uh, on the day of we engage in 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 training of their whole team, and now that dentist or whoever the uh, practice owner is, they can decide who wants to be present, but we encourage everybody to be there as much as possible. So whether that's an office of eight people or thirty people, and our company can flex to however big your company or uh, office is, but we want to come to the location. Where you actually do your work, where you actually take care of patients. We don't want to do it in some hospital room. I'm sorry, I'm not a hospital room. A hotel, a hotel conference room, um, because you want to be, you want to know how to operate in your facility, in your location with your team, because that's who you're going to work with. Because after that training is done, I'm not going to be there, and you have to know how to, how to work within um, the abilities of the people that you're with. So in that training what we do is we actually engage in several um, situations and it's not like BLS or ACLS, you know, it's a little, um, uh, there's in, in, in simulation in the simulation world, there's different zones of uh, what they call SIM zones of learning and the training you get in, in, uh, in ACPR or BLS or ACLS is what we call zero, zone zero, zone uh, one, or zone two uh, sim zones. What you really want is zone two, three, four in terms of your simulation. That's where you get that real team building. And so the way I learned about you know how to train this is I actually uh, reached out to Center for Medical Simulation. It's a Boston based nonprofit organization that was founded by Harvard faculty in the 1990s. And they are, um, they, they, they are the Bentley of medical um, simulation training. And they are internationally known they go to, they, they go to their, they're, um they not only train the Harvard faculty, about how to run medical emergencies and medical events and other simulation type situations. But they train hospitals in Australia, Brazil, um, Spain, China, they're, they're all over. Uh, and so what I did is I reached out to them and I, I uh, we collaborated. And what we're doing is we're taking the training that they actually teach the, their own Harvard residents and faculty and nurses and take those tools and tailor it and, and modify it to the dental community and that, and that dental office and these tools in the medical um, research has been actually shown to decrease malpractice claims um, improve team training and potentially decrease employee uh, turnover and of course save lives and, 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 and save money. In fact, some of these, uh, some of these, it's pretty awesome. Some of these, the training they do at, um, at Harvard, with with a CMS or Center for Medical Simulation, um, is actually required by their malpractice carrier. They actually require their staff to go through this training on a regular basis because it's actually been shown to to save money and save lives. That's how powerful these tools are. So, what we do is actually tailor that to the dental office and to the uh, and we use it. We, we tailor it so that we know how to onboard your, not only the dentist, but the get the dental assistant involved and the front office involved and teach them that they all have a role. And it's not just like running through scenarios. Okay. Let's know, you know, let's, let's, how do we deal with uh, anaphylaxis? We go through, it's not so much the scenarios. It's about how to operate as a team during a medical event. Simple things like, everybody, where's your, uh, do you know where your equipment is? Yeah. Okay. Can you go get it? And then you, and then you, uh, we've done this in a few offices and there's actually a pause like, uh, okay, wh- what? <laughs> and, and then you start, and then they start sifting through the, um, the medical kit and you start realizing, and they start realizing, like, I don't know what to do with the stuff in here because they never had to do that. They just thought I buy it and that's it. And so we kind of, we go through that and we. Um, through the tr- through our program and workshop, we actually um, uh, there's a lot of self discovery that leads to much uh, stronger learning for the whole team. And at the end, they're like, "Holy cow, this is so awesome! I know so much more than what I did before, and I feel much more comfortable." And I'm really, the ultimate goal is that the whole team the whole team feels more confident and competent in responding to medical emergencies.
0: That's the whole point. Got it. And so if uh, if somebody's interested in reaching out to get the ball going on that because they like what they're hearing right there, uh, what's a good way to get in touch with you to like at least start the process, start filling out, getting some inquiries, getting some information? What's a, some good contact, contact information for you?
1: Yeah, um, you can email me, you know, email me at um, uh, well, first of all, you can just look up our, our website, Blue Pacific Medical Simulation or uh bpmedsim.com or or send or drop me an email. R Marn. That's the first initial of my first name and the last uh you know the, the my last name, M-A-R-N, at bpmedsim.com. Uh that's I would think is the best way to um to find out more information and connect with us. Thanks for asking
0: Casey. Yeah, fantastic. I just figured, you know, there's might be a couple pediatric dentists that like this episode got him thinking, you know, it's like, man, you know, I I've gotten kind of laxadaisical. It only takes one kid for my whole life and practice to get upended If something doesn't go right, like I'm going to just invest a little time and effort into making sure our training's good. Our systems are dialed in. And it's something that I've, I've been taking some notes that at least I know for sure. I'm going to go check on some stuff at the office and kind of do some training and kind of work on some things there. So it's, it's good to have these discussions to, um, kind of fine tune our systems and make sure we're doing things to, to keep our kids safe and healthy that we're sedating, all the time in our office. But, um, but yeah, I appreciate you coming on it's and also, talking about this. And yeah. yeah. Oh, my pleasure,
1: man. Thanks for having me. Really great to, uh, to kind of help s- spread the word and, and know that, you know, that you guys, you know, Patrick Dennis, you don't have to carry this old burden on yourself. There are resources uh, that are out there beyond just what I'm doing. There are resources out there that can help you.
0: Mm-hmm. Fantastic. All right, man. Well, I appreciate you again, coming on and uh, have a good night. We'll stay in touch. Okay. Thanks Casey. All right. Thanks. See you.
1: Thanks for listening to the Bruise and Tiny Teeth podcast. Be sure to DM our host, Casey Getz on social media with any listener questions, comments, or tough clinical situations. We'll see you next week for another unfiltered episode.